0: Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 34. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 34. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one under the chair in front of you and turn to page 901. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning everyone. Glad to see all of you guys. Just uh, as a side plug, I know Eugene already made an announcement, but I know usually a lot of us RSVP uh, even till uh, the day before, the Saturday uh, before Sunday for service, but uh, I really want to encourage you. um, The RSVP for Easter Sunday is live. It would Um, Help us greatly if you let us know that you'll be coming and staying for the luncheon so that not only do we order enough food for you, but we can arrange the seating so that you feel comfortable and we can fellowship together. Um, So I just want to encourage you to do that. I hope that many of us can stay um, in fellowship. Would you join me as we pray again? Gracious God, we do not and cannot live by bread alone alone. Let the heavenly food of the scripture we are about to hear nourish us today in the way of eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. Amen. So last Sunday, Pastor Eugene started the sermon um, titled The Heart of Communion, and we were reminded to gather together and worship as his people. It's an imperative. It's a command that our Lord gave us. Yeah, we as been going through the Book of Corinthians, we also have learned all the abuses that the Corinthians church were practicing and guilty of. And um, especially in light of the gathering, they were despising the church by humiliating the poor. The rich were gathering early, eating up, leaving nothing for the poor who came later, leaving them hungry and just devastated. And there was this division in the church. And today we continue to look at what it means to gather and worship together, what it means to partake in the Lord's Supper um, and go deeper in understanding of the Lord's Supper, to do it reverently. Now, the passage starts by saying, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. We get the first affirmation that is made about the Lord's Supper, that it's instituted by our Lord Jesus. And that's how sacrament is defined. It is something that Christ institutes. It's not an invention by the church, but it is something that is both instituted and observed by Jesus himself. Uh, We also see the, the historical context, the setting, when this communion, the Lord's Supper, was first instituted. It was on the night when Jesus was betrayed. And after the supper, we know that he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he and his disciples often gather to pray, eventually where he does get betrayed. Now, there are a couple of components when the Lord's Supper is administered. For one, there is the taking of the bread and the cup um, from the table, there is giving of thanks, and some of you guys might be familiar, in the Greek the word to give thanks or had given thanks is a participle of a word that sounds familiar to some of us, eucharisteo, which is a word that people in other tradition have used eucharist to refer to the Lord's Supper, giving Thanks. So, in addition to taking of the bread and giving thanks, there is the breaking of the bread that Jesus um, um, partook in, and obviously that points to the suffering that Christ is going to go through in his body, the whipping, the scourging, the being nailed on the cross, being speared on his side, but ultimately, most importantly, his death on the cross, Jesus says, this is my body, which is for you. Um, The word broken actually is not in the text. Remember, the bread is broken, the body isn't. Back in the Roman time, Romans did break the legs of those who were crucified because they actually wanted to show mercy, because it was painful to see someone in agony being asphyxiated again and again, pushing up, just... Let him out of misery. They broke the legs so they would just asphyxiate and die. But they didn't have to do that with Jesus. They didn't have to break the legs because Jesus was already dead. So that, as John says in nineteen chapter 19, that Jesus' legs were not broken in order that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not a bone of him shall be broken. We hear the words of Jesus that the body is given for you for you it's given for you to those who believe his body is given for you beautiful words for you as we meditate as we come together every month and partake in the lord's supper and then the last component after he breaks he gives now um, just a short Theology 101. Those of you guys who took world history you probably heard some of these words. Um, but back in the um, you know, Reformation time and pre-Reformation time, the Catholics had a particular view in understanding the Lord's Supper. You might have heard the word transubstantiation. You have the prefix trans and substantiation, change of substance. They believed that the bread and wine... Um, the Catholics, was changed when the priest consecrated the bread and the wine. So the substance of bread and wine changed for them, transformed into the body of Christ and blood of Christ. Um, The Catholics here were using an ancient philosopher's understanding, Aristotle's understanding of what substance, the essence, what makes something what it is versus the accidents, um, the non-essentials. So in, in the Catholic understand, understanding of the Lord's Supper, when the priest consecrated, it was no longer in essence, in substance, bread and wine anymore, but it turned to body of Jesus for them and blood of Jesus, and only the accidents of bread and wine was there. So it looked like it, but didn't have the essence. So the substance changes for the Catholics. Now, Luther, in, in response uh, later on, um, he, he doesn't actually like the word, Lutherans don't like this word, but uh, they are understood to have this understanding, consubstantiation. So if the Catholics believe that the substance is changed, the Lutherans believe that substance was added. Bread and wine was still there, but in addition, Jesus' body and Jesus' blood, the substance was added, Con. Substantiation. Luther insisted in the literal meaning when Jesus said, This is my body, this is my blood. Jesus is also known to say, I am the door, I am the vine. And these are meant to be understood metaphorically as a representative sense. And not only that, when Jesus first held the bread and the wine, it was his physical body that was there that was holding and breaking the bread and the wine that was being lifted up. Now, Calvin and the Reform um, view, in contrast to, let's say, the, the Catholic view or the Lutheran view, also had a problem with those who only saw the Lord's Supper as a kind of a memorial service and no more. So-called kind of spiritualist, they denied in the spiritual presence of Jesus Christ in the Lord's Supper. But when we go back, think back to chapter 10, when we partake in the Lord's Supper, we experience this spiritual, mystical participation in both union with Christ and with fellow believers. So it's not just a memorial, it is yes fundamentally to remember, but we do experience the spiritual nurturing, feeding, and mysterious unity and participation in the body of Christ. So if you partake in the Passover, Pastor Eugene talked about the Passover um, last week, Passover meal would typically start when the host Pronounces a blessing over the first cup of red wine. They go through four cups of wine, and they pass it to others. Now, the first cup was a cup of sanctification, a calling to be God's people. I will bring you out, being set apart. Now, after the prayer, after passing of the cup of wine, they'll eat bitter herbs dipped in fruit sauce, and a message will be shared, and songs of uh, Psalms of Hillel um, will be sung out loud from the book of Psalms. Second cup will be the cup of thanksgiving. And the message will be, I will free you. And with the passing of the second cup, then they will begin to actually break the bread, pass it around, um, the unleavened bread, and then they will eat the roasted sacrificial lamb. So that's the second cup. So after the meal is done, more or less, with the bread, the herbs first, bread, and the lamb, then you would receive the third cup, be lifted up, and this is a cup of redemption. I will redeem you. And then they'll sing more songs from Book of Psalms. And then finally, the fourth cup, cup of completion, I will take you as my own people. And they drank it in anticipation that God will come and restore them, and they'll they'll drink quickly um, before leaving. And it is the third cup where Jesus picks up and institutes the Lord's Supper. The third cup of communion is the cup of what? Redemption. I will redeem you. I don't think that's an accident that he waited and picked up the cup third cup of redemption and instituted and taught us to remember. In the Old Testament, cup is often referred as cup of wrath. It's an imagery of God's wrath being poured out, usually to the wicked who have sinned. In Psalm 75, 8, it says, In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out. And all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. Now, we know that after the Lord's Supper, Jesus goes out to Gethsemane and begins to pray, eventually where he gets betrayed, right? And in that prayer, he lifts up these words to the Father. "Um, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me but not as I will, but as you will. And again later, he went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink of it, may your will be done. Jesus drank that bitter cup of God's wrath, not because of his sins. He drank it for us, for us. It was a new covenant bringing redemption, starting anew, a new testament. Instead of the wine representing the blood that will be on the doorpost or on the night of the Passover, now it represents what? His blood that will be shed the next day for the remission of sins. The blood on the doorpost at the start of the Exodus really represented the blood of Christ. It foreshadowed and it promised, and now we know that it is fulfilled in what Christ did when he was crucified on that cross. Jesus Christ was a supreme lamb of God whose blood would be shed for the perfect sacrifice no need to repeat again, but once for all. No longer like the Old Testament time when sacrifices had to be brought again and again by the priests for the people. And not like the Catholics' understanding where communion is actually another sacrifice, bloodless, but still a sacrifice. Jesus is teaching us there is no need for a sacrifice anymore because my death is fully sufficient, complete. The old deliverance was merely from Egypt to Canaan, the promised land. Now the new deliverance is from sin to salvation, from death to life, from Satan's realm to the kingdom of God. So Passover is transformed into the Lord's Supper. We now eat the bread and drink the cup, not to remember that God led the Israelites out through these miraculous things, going through the Red Sea to the promised land. No, no longer that. But to remember the cross and our Savior, That's why Apostle Paul tells us again and again, I know nothing but what? Christ crucified. Because that is now the central, the, the crux of what we need to remember again and again. Not what the Lord did with the Israelites. Because all of that was only foreshadowing what he had eternally planned on that cross. Jesus calls us to do this, do this, in remembrance of him. It's a command. It's not an option. It is a command. And not to partake of the Lord's Supper is disobedience and sin. Now to the Jews, apostasy was really closely related to forgetting. Apostasy literally means a falling away from the favor of God, from fellowship with God, and from communion with the people of God. Now, today we have slightly nuanced meaning of apostasy, but and the, the people of Israel, they sinned against God when they forgot who God was and what God had done for them. Forgetting who God is and what God had done was a sin. And that's why throughout the Old Testament, we see the constant call and command to celebrate these festivals and make covenant renewals because of this essence our spiritual vitality and commitment to God and the things of God is only as strong as our memory and Jesus calls us to do this often Passover is practiced once a year no do this often and when children ask about the Lord's Supper, as they would ask when they are doing the Passover, the parents will say, actually, we are remembering when the Lamb of God, what? When the Lamb of God redeemed us from the oppressive, far worse than Pharaoh. Sin and death. He redeemed us from the power of sin and death. He reconciled us and brought us to God." not to some land, but to God through his cross. When the Hebrews remember, it's, it's more than just remembering a fact. It's like, oh, wait, when, when's my uh, wedding anniversary? It, it's not just remembering a, a data. It doesn't exclude it, but it's not just about that. It's to recapture as much as possible the reality and the significance of the event that you're recalling. So when we remember Christ and His crucifixion on the cross, we relive with Him in His life, in His ministry. We relive in His agony, in His suffering, and we relive with Him in His death as much as is possible. That's what we do. What we don't do is we don't offer up a new sacrifice. Some people use the language of altars at churches. We don't need an altar because we don't need a sacrifice. It's done. Once for all, if anything, we rededicate We re-covenant with the Lord God, who so loved that he gave himself for us. And when we do remember, it does amazing things, important things. It encourages us in hard times, right? And it helps us identify ourselves as God's people, who we are but more importantly, whose we are. That we are His people set apart. And we are to pass along this truth to the next generation. And in remembering, we glorify the Lord God. Passover was the most important, significant, covenantal remembrance in the Old Testament. Now it's the Lord's Supper that points us to the cross that serves as the central thing. In verse 26, uh, we, we read that, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we remember back to what he did, but we look forward to what he's going to do, to come again. He's going to come again. We look forward to the day when we will be with him. And as Ho Yong preached yesterday morning here, those of you guys missed out, um, we look toward the new gener- Jerusalem, when Christ will return. But until he does return, what we, we seek to be faithful as a church. Pastor Eugene talked about two elements, I believe, last week, two dimensions of the Lord's table, the the looking back and looking forward. And we've gone over that, the looking back, remembering, and proclaiming Christ's work on the cross. But we also touched upon the present, the present communion, the participation with Christ, with brothers and sisters. We, We partake in Christ's spiritual presence when we eat the bread and the wine. It spiritually nourishes us And also, we experience this communion, this fellowship with fellow saints. I mean, wasn't that the charge that was given in chapter 10? And we worship in holiness and we proclaim salvation in Christ. So there is this past looking back, present experiencing Christ, communion with Christ, communion with fellow believers, But also, again, looking forward to the future, anticipating the return of the Lord and the kingdom, the new Jerusalem. So what does this all mean? Practically, it means you should come to communion. If you call yourself a Christian, when our church celebrates the Lord's Supper, you should be here as much as you can. Exceptions, true emergencies happen But we're talking about, we're not talking about inconveniences. So on first Sunday, if you're a believer, you should be here. And we are also going to partake in the Lord's Supper on Good Friday. Be here because the Lord commands us, do this often in remembrance of Him. Don't let distance, don't let your job or your family, don't let COVID be an excuse. Come. Come. Come to the Lord's table, because you know what? It's, it's, not a, it's not a sharing of a funeral, although we might recognize the somberness of what we do, but it's actually closer to a dress rehearsal, a wedding rehearsal, supper of the Lamb. What we do here, when we come together, partaking, giving, and receiving the elements of the body and blood of Christ and feast upon what he has done in remembering, we are actually practicing a dress rehearsal for what ultimately awaits us, this wedding marriage feast of the Lamb. So if there are those four elements that the the one who administers the, the elements, you know, when we receive it, there are two basic things, right? We receive first, and then we eat. In, in receiving, we are actually, it's, it's signifying that, you know, we trust in Jesus as our Savior. When we take it, when we eat, it's pointing that we, we depend on Christ. We need Him to spiritually nurture us. Just as a physical body, we eat two to three meals a day, some of us more, some of us less, um, and our daily bodies need that nutrients. In, in our spiritual life, we depend on Christ. So apart from Him, we can't be sustained spiritually. Partaking in the elements, the bread and the wine, signifies that, you know what? We depend on Christ. We need our spiritual union with Him. We need to grow in grace continue to repent. But you know what's really challenging um, is that verse 27 calls us to not to come in an unworthy manner because if we do, we will be guilty. Um, To participate in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way is being careless. And uh, now this Unworthy manner is, is an adverbial phrase. It's describing how we are to approach the Lord's Supper. It's not condemning um, the unworthiness of a partaker. So it's, um, it's the emphasis in unworthy manner, not an unworthy individual, because you know what? We are all unworthy people. The table is for those who are unworthy or else we can't come. We recognize that we're not worthy as people, but how we come we're not to come in an unworthy manner. To partake in an unworthy manner, or to take the elements without true faith in Christ, without really cherishing, while or cherishing unrepentant sin. So if we come without true faith, true knowledge, saving faith, knowledge, or without really repenting, then we are coming in an unworthy manner. Sometimes we partake in a ritualistic way. Um, some of us might have grown up partaking Lord Lord's Supper maybe like a couple of times a year. We do it once a month. And for some of us, that might be a bit frequent, and you might already feel like just going through the motion without really treating it in a serious way. Some of us might, from the background, we, we might come to the table or think that, you know, it's the ceremony itself that me- gives us grace when that's not true at all. The motion of going through, there's nothing salvific, but we're remembering what Christ did. The ceremony itself can't save us or keep us saved. And some of us, as the Corinthians here, they came with bitterness. They came with unrepentant sin. Remember, the Corinthian church, they had division, they had sexual immorality, they had arrogance, they were abusing their liberty, just to list a few. And to come unworthily to the table, we become guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. It dishonors what Christ did on the cross. When we come to his table, this way. It dishonors everything that he has done on the cross, paying for your sins and mine when we come in this unworthy way. So what do we do? So what do we do? Well, verse 28, this is how we to approach rightly. Instead of all the unworthy way, come this way. And this way is about coming with Self-examination, let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink the cup. This self-examination, looking honestly into our hearts for anything and sift it out before the Lord. And that's why the Lord's Supper is really a, a purifying thing for the church. It calls all Christians to examine ourselves not to find reasons that we are unworthy, but to find evidence of a true repentant heart that gets the cost of the cross. We're examining ourselves not for perfection or else who can come, but again, recognition of their need for the perfect Christ, the perfect Lamb who gave His life Who made us away to God? Verse twenty-nine continues: For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. This discerning the body um, can be translated as distinguishing or discriminating. To it's to separate a person or thing from the rest. So this discerning the body really has to do with looking at the elements of bread and wine as it's in itself. That's it, and no more. Not understanding what it's really pointing to. Not the symbol of Christ, what it did on the cross. Because evidently, when the Corinthian church, after feasting, all that they wanted, and then partook, they didn't get it. They failed to see Christ. They failed to see what they were doing and not doing with fellow believers was so different was dishonoring God and bringing judgment to themselves. To truly discern the body, the Lord's body, requires us to know good doctrinal knowledge. You need to know who Christ is, what he has done. And we need to have a personal trust in what He has done. If you partake in this meal without recognizing Jesus' life, his death, then we're drinking judgment, eating judgment on ourselves. Now, there's, there are two words that's used here, similar but slightly different. The language of judgment is krema. Pastor Eugene mentioned that word many times as we've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians. And it's judgment, chastisement, discipline um, in those ways. And that's different from the end of the chapter, verse 32, when the, the word condemnation is used. That's um, kata krema. That's condemnation. Condemnation is for those who are not in Christ. Judgment, discipline, are for those who are in Christ, that God is trying to, just as a father disciplines a child, God would discipline or judge to bring you back. Come on, let's go. This is not the way. This chastising, this discipline, judging, is what awaits when we take the body and the blood um, without discerning Without examining ourselves, and to avoid this judgment of God, we're called to examine. We're called to examine ourselves, because if you don't, and this is the situation in the first Corinthian, excuse me, in the Corinthian church, there were those who were weak, there were those who were ill, and there were those who died, because they were not taking the Lord's supper in a right way. God does judge and punish to discipline his own by meeting out weakness, illness, and even death. We can't always think if someone's ill or something physically horrible happened, it's caused by sin. Because, I mean, read the book of Job. We know that's not always the case. But we also do know, however, that physical weakness, illnesses can be can be God's punishment to his, his own. Spiritual failure may be met by physical judgment. After all, that's what God did when Ananias and Sapphira in Acts five came before the church. And when Adam and Eve sinned, there was a physical judgment, and ultimately our Lord Jesus received that physical judgment for us, for you and me. It's a scary, sober thing. We take our life into our own hands when we come to the table. And that's why we fence the table. We're not trying to be arrogant and exclusive, but we're trying to protect you from the consequence and danger of improperly, Participating in the Lord's Supper. Great intentions in church history, with churches that I've been to, have had horrible consequences for God's people because, with, just because they wanted people to come, not without clearly understanding who we are first, whether we should come or not. Because clearly, if you're not in Christ, if you do not understand what Christ did on the cross and have placed your trust in Him, you should not be coming because that will condemn you that will not help you at all and if we're not living in repentance humility seeking god then we will only bring judgment when we come to the lord's table the remedy again as you continue in verse 31 is to judge ourselves judge ourselves examine ourselves so that we are not judged by god if we judge ourselves, then we would not come under judgment of God. That's why we want you to take time when we take the Lord's Supper. And on those Sundays that you come, when we have the Lord's Supper, take time before. Come early. Reflect on the cross. Not just when we come, uh, when some comes up and others come up to confess our sins, but to really meditate, to truly remember what. Christ crucified means for the Corinthians this partisan split and partisan spirit the lack of compassion to those who are weak and poor their sexual immorality their arrogance all of that was a clear contradiction to what the gospel message teaches The Lord's Supper serves to provide us a way to regularly examine ourselves. Because we're sinful, we don't want to think of our sins. It's like a fish. A fish lives in the water. If a fish were to describe how its life is, it wouldn't describe that it swims around because it's so used to it. And we sin, and we don't naturally want to admit and confess. We can see sin in others. I think Song's prayer reminded us we recognize the sin of others easily, but we're not so quick in admitting that we are sinful. We must repent of our sins and trust in God's provision through the death of Christ. God does send individual chastening judgment so that defenders would turn back to Christ. Sometimes he sends death, the Bible says. That's scary, but we know maybe the whole Ananias and Sapphira is not just about falsifying what they're actually giving, but in the context of such, because God takes sin seriously. But he meets out weakness, illness, and death not to condemn you to hell, but so that you would not sin against him and cause even more disunity with the church. As a side, I just want to talk about this, what it means for us to understand salvation and for those of us who might suffer or wrestle with this assurance of salvation. Now, salvation is a matter of Person's relationship to God. Assurance of salvation has to do with a matter of a person's feeling sure about his or her relationship to God. A person may be born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, yet not yet fully enjoy with certainty that joy of knowing Christ. But salvation. As we know, it is permanent, and it cannot be lost. If it's lost, then that means that person really wasn't saved. But as we go through life experiencing temptations, lapses, lack of understanding in biblical doctrine and truth, we might not have the assurance of salvation. But again, we're not saved by assurance, our assurance, but by faith in Christ as our Redeemer. We're saved by believing in Christ, not by believing that we are saved. A person who confesses himself a lost sinner and sincerely intends and wants to believe in Christ as his Redeemer and really fighting for purity is a Christian and should come to the table. You know, back in the... um, Old Testament time, when the Passover was initiated and observed, every family, remember, try to go back to the original Exodus, every family had to kill a lamb, put the blood on the lentil and on the side post of their house, and they were going to be saved from the plague that destroyed the firstborn of the Egyptians. Now, suppose there are like two families. One family got the lamb ready, put the blood on the doorpost in the frame, family came in, and, you know, they were rejoicing with the certainty of the safety that God was availing them. Second family, let's say, the adjacent house, they did the same thing, but they they don't have this assurance. They're actually quite worried. They're actually disturbed. They're doubting whether this is really going to keep them safe. Which of these families is safer? The person who is putting his faith in the blood, whatever the doubt he or she has, is saved in God's sight, belongs with the covenant people of God. Now, if you don't have the assurance of salvation, that doesn't mean... You should just be complacent. In fact, if you don't have the assurance of salvation, all the more you should fight in prayer and fasting and feasting on the Word, seeking godly counsel, and dig in to fight for that assurance. The chapter ends. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. So Paul is actually okay Okay, you can come and eat, but don't keep doing what you were doing before. Wait. Wait for those who are probably working, who are poor. Be thoughtful. Wait for each other. But also, be thoughtful for yourselves because if you don't, you're going to be liable for God's judgment. If you're hungry, eat at home. Satisfy your hunger at home. So that you don't tempt others and bring judgment on yourself. Don Carson, in his book Love in Hard Places, he writes The church is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, anything else of that sort. Christians. Come together because they have all been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. And we see a beautiful picture in Acts 16. If you look at the members of Lydia's house church, you have Lydia, who was is, who is Asian. You have the slave girl, who was probably Greek and you have the Philippian jailer who was Roman. Not only that, you have different economic classes. Lydia, who was a white-collar, slave girl, who was poor, and the jailer, who was a working class. Brothers and sisters, I think we all know that we struggle with selfishness, and we're so easily tempted to look like the rest of the world. The way that Corinthians were eating was the way that the Corinthians in the city would typically gather and eat. We attempted to seek our own happiness at the expense of others, but we must resist because the Lord's Supper, what it means to gather together as a church, challenges any sort of such expectation in the way the world will dictate when we gather together on Easter, when we gather together on that Easter luncheon, let us come with true spiritual hunger, seeking Him. If you're hungry, eat at home before, okay? Let us not be thoughtless hypocrites, but loving Christians who are captured and captivated by Christ, Him crucified join me as we pray.